Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. Scott, what's up, pal? Still enjoying your brilliant idea last week to have the Friendsgiving podcast. Very good idea to bring guests onto a podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Groundbreaking. Yeah, I know. Just, just an innovation. Thought later. It was good. It was a good flow. I loved uh, listening to Christina and, and Alon. Maybe we should just make that like a regular just quartet. Give, that just was fun. Give them a podcast. Yeah. We get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just move on with our lives. <laughs> yeah. And joining us, of course, fellow managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafana. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Very well. Thank you. We released a big news series called Year One, COVID-19's Death Toll. Last year, we sued for death records of the San Diegans who died from COVID-19 or related to COVID-19 from March 2020 to March 2021. The lead reporter on that series, Will Huntsbury, is going to join us to talk about what they realized after hundreds of hours looking at those death certificates and uh, the numbers and the people who actually died from COVID in that first year. Some stunning stories that came out of that. Let me just underline one thing here. Since we've seen it in tweets at us and comments on the website, there was no vaccine during the first year. So if your response to this was, well, they should have been vaccinated, I just want to say again, we are talking about people who died in the first year of the pandemic when there was no vaccine. Yes. Okay. Andrea got her first byline in Voice San Diego. Welcome. Whoop, whoop. The You're city- welcome. I'm just the- kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I am welcome. I am very welcome on that. The city is struggling with the question of sidewalk vending, and as she explored, they're going to have to solve the question of, can you let people make ends meet and get their businesses started on the street while also protecting public spaces? Finally, they have granted me another special permit to discuss with you some sweet politics of sports drama. 
the city of St. Louis has gotten some sweet justice from the NFL, and I'd like to explain. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, we are in the middle of our year-end fundraising campaign, a really important time of year for us and for the show. Decembers have always been clouded with a little bit of angst on my part because uh, we make so much of our money for surviving throughout the year as an organization in this month. Um, Year-end contributions, that kind of thing matters. So if you value what we do here, please please consider donating Voice of San Diego, VOSD.org slash donate. Our investigations, what we give you here on the podcast, uh, all of that is dependent on contributions from the community. Everything matters. Every dollar matters. Every dollar, even if it's just five bucks that you can give us, that counts as a donation that we can tell people who may be able to give more that there's broad support for what we do. VOSD.org slash donate. So we have heard from a lot of you podcast fans Here's one, Melanie Phipps. She said, good reporting heard on COVID in San Diego by Will Hunsberry on the radio last night. Apparently that was KPBS. So they also have a, a show that reaches people, apparently. Krista Stelmacher said, you make me not irrelevant, even though I have no time. Well, there you go. Carlos Rico said, I want Voice of San Diego to continue to do independent investigative journalism in San Diego. Mary said, I am so hungry for substantive local news. Agree. And then our boy, Danny Freeman. VOSD is the best local news product out there. I don't know if I love anybody more than Danny Freeman. He's, I mean, my family and you guys, my wife, all that stuff. But, but Dan, then after that list, Danny Freeman. Danny Freeman yeah. He uh, was at NBC San Diego. Now he's in Philadelphia, right? He's uh, just a great guy. Just a, I don't know if he's ever had a bad day. He seems like he's just got a great day all the time. Uh, thanks to everyone who gave during this campaign. We appreciate you, and we promise to keep giving you this show and the journalism you need. Uh, and this show, by the way, like I hear from people all the time who love the podcast. Uh, they they are excited about the podcast. That's all they do, some of them, and it's a great way to keep up with what we do. So thank you, and please continue supporting if you can. VOSD.org slash donate. All right, a few months ago, you guys let me explain the situation with the St. Louis city and county and sports complex and their lawsuit against the NFL and the Rams. The Rams had left and gone to LA. The Chargers left and went to LA. And the Raiders went from Oakland to Las Vegas. So this lawsuit was based on the idea that the NFL had these rules for how teams should be able to move cities and that they had not lived up to those rules, right? So I I was able to get some history on this. So in 1989, the Raiders moved from Oakland to LA and the NFL sued them and was uh, upset about that move. And the the Raiders made the counterpoint that you cannot control us because that is an anti-competitive move. It'd be a violation of US antitrust law. And the, uh, the NFL said, okay, what do we do? And the court told them, said, if you want to do this in the future, you should lay out actual rules about how a team could move from city to city. And the criteria for that would be objective, and you could make the determination, and you could hold that up, and then they could move, and it would be a lot easier when you deal with these complaints from people who are mad about you moving. Because the uh, NFL 
does not want to run afoul of anti-competitive antitrust regulations at the at the federal level. No, that's no, that, the one thing they no, that, never want to do. No, yeah, no. they're not like baseball, who has an antitrust right. exemption. Right. The NFL uh, has to worry about that constantly, and that is the one thing you can always hit them with. The labor unions do it all the time; like they're always attacked on that front. And they also don't want to get into a situation where there's a lawsuit so bad that they might have to actually reveal how much money they make and how much money they make often on the backs of city taxpayers and such, right? Yeah. Regardless, set that aside for a second. Yes. So they agreed to these new rules and they went to the Senate and they went to all the U.S. Conference of Mayors and everybody and they said like, these are our rules. They're basically a contract with these cities. And and if if the rules aren't followed, then you got us. So St. Louis used that and made the case that, in fact, the NFL's rules were bogus because the Rams clearly were going to leave Regardless of these rules, that these, these, they didn't, by the rules, they couldn't have left St. Louis. And so regardless of the sort of misleading things the Rams said when they were in St. Louis, the NFL, as St. Louis kept pointing out, kept telling the city, you can save this team by following these rules, by going through this criteria and trying to protect them. And what St. Louis apparently very convincingly argued was that, no, this is bogus. And we spent like $18 million after you said we could still do that. And it turned out to be very clear that this team was moving. So they got through the first round at the court and the court ordered just a bunch of depositions and and record subpoenas from uh, St. Louis was requesting of the NFL. And so these NFL owners were going nuts, having to turn over a bunch of documents and do a bunch of interviews and all these things with these lawyers from St. Louis. So the pressure started to mount. St. Louis wanted $4 billion. They wanted the money that the Rams were paying the NFL to move uh, to uh, L.A., and which was about $650 million. And then they wanted the difference of the value of the Rams franchise when it moved from L.A. or from St. Louis to L.A. So it became a th- uh, from a $1 billion or $2 billion operation to like a $5 billion operation. They wanted that difference. <laughs> so they started to get some traction. And the NFL starts freaking out about this. Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, starts saying like, well, you're going to have to help me pay for some of this NFL owners. And they're like, you told us we wouldn't have to pay for anything. The heat starts turning up. They just settled last week for $790 million. The NFL and the Rams will pay to the city, county, and sports complex of of St. Louis. $790 million. $275 million of it going to the lawyers. Wow. That's a... That's a commission. That's that's a good day at the office. <laughs> at the, on the one hand, you really want to commend St. Louis for for buttoning up their lawsuit and proving up their case, and clearly doing much more than the city of San Diego was capable of doing on yeah, its end. That- on the other side, boy, went went ahead and spent a third of that money before the the check even cleared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to be the 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 journalist that got to write the story that your city was going to get 
$800 million almost from the NFL for having done this to your city? Because the NFL did the exact same thing to San Diego. Yeah, so tell tell our listeners, why are we hearing about this story <laughs> Don't we love in, this, in the city of St. Louis and not in the city of San Diego? They did the exact same thing. The same people talked to me on the phone and are like, you know what? The, you can keep the team in San Diego if you follow these rules. I've seen it worse. Don't worry. It turns out, though, in 2004, we made a deal with the Chargers that they would stay in Qualcomm Stadium for a few more years. But we also included in that deal that we would never, as a city of San Diego, sue them if they did this exact thing and left. And we would never sue them for antitrust violations. That is bad lawyering. Whereas what the city of St. Louis did was good lawyering. <laughs> what the city of San Diego did, conversely, was bad lawyering. They have, yeah. So even if after they give the money to the lawyers, they still have, what? $600 million. Five to $600 million yeah. to spend on parks and yeah, roads and yeah. public restrooms. All these things that we talk about needing. And here we're like, well... Good for them. <laughs> well, we extended their lease at a facility by 10 years, and therefore we rene we relinquished our right to any sort of future lawsuit or protection Ugh, of damn. any kind. Thanks for the memories. Yes. <laughs> That's bad leadership. That's what, what I like. It, it's just it's rare that you get an actual dollar figure attached to something as typically unquantifiable as bad leadership. Yeah. But the years and years of bad leadership at the city of San Diego, whether in the city attorney's office, in the mayor's office, on the city council dais, uh, in the rank and file of the uh, city staff that was responsible for some of these things for the last two decades, we could put a price tag on some of those, some of those missteps. It's about $800 million. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just full clear disclosure here, Voices San Diego did not exist. In yes. 2004, when that lease was extended. And it's canon from here on out that we would have called out of that lease. Of course, we would have terms. stopped we that. We would have picked up on that. We would have identified it as but a it, bad deal. And that's That's, that's canon, why. right? That. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So think about all of these bad deals we might be avoiding if you go to VOSD.org slash donate. VOSD.org slash donate. $800 million would be nice. <laughs> resident of Ocean Beach, surf down at the pier. Always these sidewalk vendors that set up, quite, set up quite early. And it's caused a lot of tension in the neighborhood because that little park there by the beach is, is basically just sidewalk vendors all the time now. On the other hand, there are a lot of people making a living, creating a business doing this. So Andrea, you decided you want to look into it. Now, first, why? What, what, what interests you about it? Well, I had read a couple stories about um, these like proposed regulations that were coming for sidewalk vendors here in San Diego in 2019. And I ended up going to an event and I, I think just speaking to vendors themselves, I realized that what, like, wow, these are individuals who, you know, don't necessarily have the means to open up a restaurant right away, but that's where they would like to get eventually. So, you know, I, I kind of wanted to come at it from a different angle and explore their side and see, you know, why they were so concerned with these regulations. Yeah. So it, it is 
hard to start a business here, right? The rent, the permits, everything like that. Getting these, a loan. But these are very <laughs> entrepreneurial people. They don't yeah. want the handouts. They don't want to rest. They want to create something. And this is the very minimally viable effort they can have, they can put out, right? Yeah. And so I, I think uh, first to start off, we kind of have to think about like what we think of as vendors, right? Right. For the most part, we think of, or at least I think of street vendors as push cart vendors. So this is like your ice cream you know, person, uh, your elotero man, you know, they're pushing their carts or they're setting up somewhere. Um, in LA might be like a, a, a gentleman selling like fruit on the side of the street, right? Maybe they could ring the bell a little less. <laughs> that's how they get their business. I know, I know, just a little less. <laughs> and that's like the best part where you just like in your house and you hear the little bell yeah. and you're like, yes, I need uh, to go get ice cream or elote, which are like, it's the most delicious thing yes. in this world. If right. I could eat corn mm-hmm. all day, every day, I would. That's beside the point. Okay. You can. So. And you're, you're an adult. You got <laughs> cool. yeah. Well, yeah, probably like some health concerns. <laughs> I think you'd be all right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people eating worse things every day than that. You, yeah. Okay. I, Andrea, let <laughs> yourself <laughs> free. Go go get an ear of corn every day. Well, it's, it's only it. a couple bucks, I bet. <laughs> okay. So you have these like push cart vendors, right? Yes. And so a lot of cities in the state of California, some of them have programs and regulations for these types of vendors, pushcart vendors. Uh, Some of them don't. So it can be a little problematic. And I think a big thing that started this conversation was that some vendors were dealing with fines. Some vendors were dealing with jail sentences because, you know, they were breaking rules within a city. Across California. Across California, Um, especially in Los Angeles. Like we there was a lot of stories across California um, and in Los Angeles where you would see like pushcart vendors get assaulted by people. Um, or, you know, they often get robbed because they're just carrying cash. So that was happening. And um, in 2018, um, SB 946 was proposed and it eventually went into law in 2019. And basically, the state law says that any city um, agency, whatever, in the state of California, if they have a program for street vendors, there are certain things that the city can't do. And if they don't have a program, they should, you know, come up with a program that allows these street vendors and it kind of changed the way you view street vendors where like you don't see them as like a nuisance. You see them as like a really small micro business and you want to see them grow. Um, so basically this law said that like cities, if they have a program, they can't ban them from parks. Um, they if they are regulating when they're in sidewalks, it can't be for reasons other than like public safety uh, lots of public space, right? Like you need people in wheelchairs to be able to go down a sidewalk. <laughs> you can't just like block yeah. those. Um, so that went into effect in 2019, which kind of like opened up floodgates for vendors. <laughs> so now we see the vendors that we think of now that are in Ocean Beach, right? They have like canopies, they have tables and they just set up on the street. They're not roaming so much. We still have roaming vendors. Sure. But so the city uh, had a has an ordinance. City of San Diego has an ordinance for roaming street vendors. Those are you know your ice cream and your eloteros, but not one for the ones that just set up on the street. So Kevin Faulkner, um, back when he was mayor, uh, this became an issue, right? A lot of like city, uh, a lot of um, beach communities were really upset. Like they were like, we're losing our public space, or they're all over the beach. Um, they're really really upset. A lot of merchant groups were upset. Um, because basically they felt, you know, these vendors are kind of just um, causing trash or um, stealing business from us. 
so uh, Kevin Faulkner, when he was mayor, he proposed an ordinance uh, that would regulate like certain areas, would restrict vendors from certain areas in the city, like a bull park, downtown. <laughs> where people are. Where people are, <laughs> like where people want to be to yeah. sell their um, items, you know. So I think uh, at the time, I remember I went to a workshop that the city put out and it was really interesting because it was in Logan Heights and all the vendors there spoke Spanish and could barely speak English. And so like all these city employees are trying to explain this like really complicated ordinance to them with like these really beautiful poster boards. But like the people there were like, so what are you telling me? Like, can I sell here or not? You know, like they just had some like really good questions that I think the city was like struggling to answer. In a setting like that, does it kind of drive you nuts? Like, do you ever just want to like be like, okay, I'll do it. I'll just. <laughs> and, and they had someone. They had, okay. you know, like I think once they realized like, oh, wow, everyone here speaks Spanish. And, you know, they had this guy and like as a native Spanish speaker, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. What is he saying? Like, it almost felt like as a reporter, they were asking me questions because I was familiar with yeah. this ordinance. So. I think efforts like that, and because it was so close before it went before a commission, the proposed ordinance, I think a lot of advocates and vendors themselves felt like this is not genuine, right? They're not really trying to get our opinion on this ordinance. They're just trying to like check a box that they spoke to us and got our feedback. So with that, with that like issue with people speaking out against it, and then also, you know, this is like 2019, end of 2019, early 2020, the pandemic kind of just like died. So since then, we've seen what we see now. <laughs> so like Ocean Beach packed with vendors. Um, and Mario Logan, what was interesting and what I included in my story was that this group of business owners wanted to bring the neighborhood back to life, right? Like during it was the pandemic. Dead during the pandemic. So they allowed street vendors uh, to set up on the street and, you know, it, it just encouraged a lot of people to come back. And what it did for those street vendors is you know, they marketed their items, they sold a lot, and some of them even moved into spaces, which is kind of the argument that advocates say, like, if the city is going to adopt some kind of ordinance, it should keep in mind that, you know, maybe it needs to offer some kind of tools for people to move from the street to an actual shop, right? It, and it that benefits. The, <laughs> it is in the city's interest for people who are this ambitious and good to build a business and create jobs. Yeah. I mean, in fact, it's like the most basic level of economic development yeah. that the city could do. And instead of that, you much more often, or not maybe not much more often, but from time to time, you'll see the city do these top-down things like offering subsidies to certain certain businesses or certain certain industries where you have to know somebody, you have to know the right person, you have to know that this money's available. You have to, you know, be somebody with the wherewithal to come in to City Hall and figure out which levers you can push as opposed to just setting the standards and the rules that allow somebody with not much money to get their foot in the door and start succeeding. That was kind of dropped with the pandemic and officials had, you know, greater priorities, right? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Todd Gloria might have mentioned it when he was running for mayor or he mentioned it when he was already mayor, but mm -hmm. he talked about this ordinance and he talked about maybe finding some kind of solution that's equitable, but also protects the interests of, of residents. And um, that didn't really happen. They kind of kicked the ball to uh, 
Council President Jen Campbell because she represents some of the beach communities, which have had a lot of issues and concerns of loss of public space. So, so. bottom line is we're hoping to see something in like the next month or so? Uh, this month, December. So they're supposed to release that ordinance and So all she has to do is protect the economic interests and opportunities (laughs) of this uh, effort and make uh, people who are worried about these public spaces and whatever happy. So no problem. No. And I'm sure the I'm sure the businesses that pay rent uh, that are potentially competing with these businesses, I'm sure they don't. They don't. They're not placing any phone calls to anybody. No. No. Well, that was a great story, great explanation of the state law and and also just the view from, uh, you know, people who would be directly affected by this. So great job. Thank you. Thank you. Last year, our little organization filed a few lawsuits for public records, and one of them was about getting access to death records, death certificates, and the information that was on them related to people who had gotten COVID and died at least in part because of COVID. And we wanted to get that information, look at it, and see what it might tell us about those people. Uh, We had to fight for it. We ended up uh, uh, winning that lawsuit and getting access to those records, but it required us to go and spend maybe a thousand hours <laughs> at the county. Yeah. If you want to count driving out to Santee as well, I don't know how many hours it was. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, so many. <laughs> yeah. And on the line you can hear uh, is Will Hunsbury. Will, hello. How's it going, guys? COVID-19 took its first life in San Diego on March 22nd, 2020. That was a 76-year-old business owner who was born in Mexico. He lived in South Bay. Uh, Over the next year, over 4,000 more people died in the region, either because of COVID-19 or because of conditions exacerbated by COVID-19. Our team, led by Will Hunsbury there, analyzed all of these death tickets to see who was most affected by COVID in the area and what they told us about who struggled the most. And it was a very interesting piece. So, Will, uh, appreciate you and uh, Bella Ross and Jesse Marks mm-hmm. all worked on that, editor Andrew Keats. And then we had some visual support from Megan Wood, Adriana Heldes, and Nate John. So it was a whole team effort. Uh, what did you guys, what's the biggest thing you took away from that effort? Well, you know, there are a couple big takeaways. So it's it can be tough to choose. Um I think we all knew that there were these disparate impacts from COVID. We all heard that a lot during the height of the pandemic, but just how disproportionate the impacts were was really shocking when we got down into the numbers. You know, I have a bachelor's degree. Maybe all you guys on the line have a bachelor's degree. That meant we were so much more protected than our neighbors who didn't have that. For, for whatever reason, you know. Let's break that down. So it's not like we held our bachelor's degree up and it stopped the virus, right? What you're saying is that as you look through these these things, you, you were struck by the fact that education levels seem to have a pretty good representation of, of how well somebody survived this. 
Yeah, yeah, it was really predictive. I mean, we don't know exactly what the cause is. Like you said, you know, you don't just hold up your bachelor's degree against the virus. But, you know, we know if you have a bachelor's degree, you are probably a lot more likely to be able to work from home. But even that only explains part of it. You know, most of the people who died were retiree age. One quarter of them were not. So so for them, you know, a lot of them were probably a lot more likely to do essential labor. But, you know, poverty is another uh, thing that seems to be at play. And a, and a degree and education level is real indicative of that, um, too, right? You know, we've, we found that um, – for every six thousand dollars, six hundred increase in median household income, the likelihood that a person would die went down by ten percent. You know, and and so there's just so much at play here, right? There's chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension, and you know, if you live in a poor neighborhood, you have less grocery stores, you have less places to walk. It means you're more likely to get diabetes and things like that. I mean, you know, as we put in the story, if you poorer children literally have higher blood pressure than their peers and that leads to hypertension and and that put you more at risk. There was another edition of the series that came out the next day about immigrants and the fact that they may make up about 20 to 25% of the San Diego population but among people who died from COVID-19 or related causes over that year, that was, uh, they made up 50% of that total. Yeah. Yeah. 50%. I mean, I think, and I think you asked what the biggest one that stuck out was, that was the one that I was least expecting. You know, we, we, we knew certain racial groups were hit harder. You know, we knew black and Latino people were hit harder. We had a sense that poorer people were hit harder. So it made sense about the bachelor's degree, but um, you know, to see immigrants bear such a terrible toll of this disease um was shocking to us. And we, and we still don't totally understand that either. It's not like you just hold up your immigration status and that's what pre- protects you from the virus. It's, it's interrelated with a lot of parts of our society, I think. But one confounding element is, is that researchers uh, feel fairly confident that on the whole, immigrants are actually healthier than other populations. They tend to be younger and they tend to be healthier. And so, uh, it, it you it, it's not necessarily something about the health status of people who immigrated to this country that tells you that they that they are um you know fundamentally more vulnerable uh because no, of, because right. of that health status yeah yeah i mean the the researchers told us you know when they arrive in the country they essentially should be less vulnerable they they have less health conditions you know the healthy immigrant effect it's called that phenomenon i think Basically, what researchers think is that you tend to immigrate if you're healthy, you know, Mm -hmm. and so it just totally put that on its head. That story really, really hit me. I mean, the the writing was so powerful. The stories of uh, of the well, the story of the family that you guys spoke with. um, I told Andy, I was like, I can't get through the story without, you know, feeling like I'm going to cry. It's it's so, so sad. But, um, you know, I had been reporting a little bit, too, on um, on COVID and the impact of Latino communities. So kind of reading your story was just like, wow, like it it was true, you know, that that there that Latinos were just disproportionately impacted. And not only that, but some of our most vulnerable community members of the Latino community immigrants as well. 
What was the some of that you talked to some people? So I that's what I think is fascinating about this. You you look at all the death records. You didn't have a, any preconceived ideas of what the stories were going to be when you came out of that. And then you see, oh my gosh, half of these people who died were born and moved from another country to this country. You talk to them, people try to understand why that might be. And there were some interesting answers, right? That, that there there might be less access to, to health care. There might be uh, mm-hmm. less access to information about what's going on. And you might just have to work more in the public. Totally, totally. I, I think language was the one that really stuck out to me, you know, um, that if you weren't getting good information about COVID um, in the early days or even throughout the pandemic, you know, think about what a huge problem that would be. How do you, how do you protect your family if you're not even getting the information? Yeah, I mean, think about how in those first weeks, how much everybody would gather around the, the, the TV and watch those press conferences at four o'clock every afternoon. There was rapidly changing information. You, every time you talked to somebody, somebody was telling you some other little tidbit they had heard. And it's not hard to imagine that that information would be less free-flowing if there was a language barrier. Yeah, I think there was something interesting that happened too as well. Like Nora Vargas got elected to the mm-hmm. supervisor seat. And I remember she first thing she did was go up there and start speaking Spanish, right? Yeah. She mm-hmm. To those actual presentations. And there was this sudden concerted effort as well to start getting people vaccinated in South Bay. And they've done extremely well since then. I think that uh, what we've revealed though is in that fog of the first year, it got bad. And we knew anecdotally from a lot of uh, of reports that it was getting bad in these areas. But again, there was like a fog, right, Andrea? It was like, a, it was like we didn't, we knew there was something bad going on. And now this just sort of brings into relief that, yeah, a lot of people were suffering and it wasn't equally spread. No, I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was not equal at all. And it was it was shocking to me just how this was like a storm that like tore through certain parts of San Diego and not other ones, you know. And And if you went to the more vulnerable communities, if you can imagine it was like a hurricane or a tornado, like you saw down trees and crushed houses everywhere and you went through other parts and it was like nothing happened. And I think. We were all so consumed during the height of the pandemic, right, with like just how hard it was personally for all of us. And so I think to like go back and have this, some people have been calling it a retrospective now, I think we're all a lot more prepared to absorb it. And then the next question is like, are we prepared to do something about it, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think one piece of information that you found that was that was really interesting um, that again, had been reported anecdotally, uh, this put a fine point on it, um, was that immigrants are much likelier to live in multi-generational households. Um, and, totally. And, you know, there was a, a pretty striking finding in the data uh, on that front. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a striking finding in the data there, Andy. Um, and, and it was so we basically we were able to look at addresses and we found 32 residential addresses. So not care homes where at least two people died and three quarters of those were immigrant households, you know, and we and we spoke to one family, um, the Torres family. They had three generations living under one roof. Um, both of the parents ended up going into the hospital for different things. They were older, their health was fragile. 
both of them turned out to have COVID. Um, you know, and it was it was a heartbreaking story to hear from that family um, about losing their parents and and about how they asked themselves the same questions that we were asking ourselves, right? Like you, I, I was always so scared to visit older people in those early days. Like, am I going to give this to them? And, you know, these are families who actually lost somebody and they're trying to recreate their own footsteps, uh, their footsteps, their friends and family. Like, how did this get into our house? And and I think, you know, at least the family, the Torres family that we spoke to, you know, they came to the realization that's a dead end. Like, you know, we've lost our parents and, and nothing is going to change that. And so, you know, now now we have to try to reckon reckon with that. What was the fact you guys were talking about earlier today that that there are what thirty homes where where two people died of COVID, and a big portion of them were were families that were immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Thirty two houses. Yeah, there were thirty two houses where two people died, and seventy five percent of those were immigrant homes. And, and you know, we heard that early on, right? That multi generational housing. Maybe this is gonna. It's maybe this is going to make a difference. There's more essential workers in the immigrant community and they live in multi-generational housing. Uh, we heard this as a theoretical point, but what our reporting was able to do was like put this concrete point on it that, yes, this absolutely was happening. And these families are still living with the trauma of that. So, Will, let me ask you something. I mean, I know you guys fought for these records, right? And this was something that you guys had asked for early on, but the county was like, no, we're not giving you this information. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. If they had given us this information, right, we have like these stories from people telling us the Latino communities being impacted, um, immigrants live in these multi-generational households. So you're hearing like all these anecdotes, but had you had access to these death certificates early on and you could pull and show those numbers, do you think that would have made a difference to the response? Yeah, I think it would have. And I think that's part of, so let's give a shout out to Jared Whitlock, right? He was the first reporter. He was doing reporting on nursing homes and wanted to get information about their actual experience with, with some of these deaths. And he's the one, uh, he's a freelance reporter who was working with us and he wanted those records and uh, they wouldn't give it to us. And we have hit roadblocks getting information from the county since this pandemic began and had to fight. We lost one lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court for information about outbreaks. But yes, there is a reasonable argument that if they had been forthcoming with all of the data they literally had about who was dying from this, more than just sort of general demographics, maybe there could have been some changes the way that there were changes pretty soon about getting the vaccination out. I don't know. Would you agree, um, Will? I mean, you know... (laughs) governments uh, consistently shock me in their inability to to move quickly on problems that they have information about. Uh, that being said, I, you know, I got to give a, uh, at least a little bit of a hat tip to San Diego County. Researchers pointed out along the way that they had testing sites in the wrong places and they did yeah. change the places they had those. But But I guess, you know, to answer your question, this is super rich information about who died and it's really shocking information that goes above and beyond what we thought about the disparate impacts and so 
it's obviously important to this community, you know, that we released it and, and that, that San Diego County just held on to it. Um, I'll let people make their own judgments about that, I guess. Okay. Again, I, uh, you know, everybody did a great job on this. Uh, Will Huntsbury, Bella Ross, Jesse Marks, Maya Krishnan uh, was there, did some work on that and, and has some stuff coming as well on what she found. Uh, Adriana Heldes, Nate, John, Megan Wood all did some great work pulling this together. So, mm-hmm. and also uh, you can look we, on that landing page, we have the actual records. Uh, you redacted a couple of points for privacy, but uh, otherwise you can look through there and see some things uh, about each person that died there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feel, feel free to do your own research and see what, uh, if you see some relationships or findings that, uh, that we've missed, we're going to continue looking at that data for uh, the forthcoming period here and uh, see what else we can learn. So help us out. Will? Thanks, y'all. You good? <laughs> I'm good. That was good. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this particular area of San Diego County. If you love the show, and if you're here with us every week, this is your time to help us keep it going. You wouldn't get explanations like that so easy. You would not be able to trust that somebody was digging in and holding these people accountable and preventing things that you never want to see happen. If you love the show, uh, please... Donate now. Your donations fuel the show, keep our reporters going, and keep all of Voice of San Diego running. And you can donate at vosd.org slash donate. That's vosd.org slash donate. Mention the podcast, and we'll put you on here and mention you. I'm Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafaña are our managing editors. And this show is produced by Nate John. Our technician is Adam Greenfield. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.